парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. When photography was introduced to Russia in 1839, it caused a sensation. Yet its rapid proliferation challenged painting and literature, causing some of Russia's greatest novelists, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, to view the camera with skepticism. At the same time, numerous other 20th century authors, like Leonid Andreev, welcomed it with a warm embrace. So how did photography intersect with literature, influence an author's celebrity, bridge the public and private, and serve as a means to craft the self and everyday life? And what does all of this have to do with photographic literacy? I turn to Catherine Reichel for some insight. Catherine Reichel is an assistant professor of Slavic languages and literature at Princeton University, focusing on 20th century Russian literature, art, and culture. She's the author of Photographic Literacy, Cameras and the Hands of Russian Authors, published by Cornell University Press. I've also provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Catherine Reichel. Uh, your book, uh, Photographic Literacy, uh, Cameras in the Hands of Russian Authors, examines this really interesting intersection of photography, Russian writers, and the Russian literary imagination. And I must say, you know, this is something I had no – the role of photography or the place of photography or it, even having a place is something I never thought about. But I wanted to start our conversation by just having you define what is photographic literacy, because A, I've never heard of it, and if I do think about it, I'm probably photographic illiterate, so... <laughs> No, I think that I, I'm beginning with this idea that everybody thinks that they're photographically literate, um, that this is a sort of idea that I'm working with and against. Um, but it's it's built on that really basic idea of literacy first and foremost, right? So we all have to learn alphabets, um, and then we can start reading longer texts, and then eventually we can write our own texts. Um, and the idea here that I'm also playing with is that the most advanced form of literacy um, is the literary. So it's moving to that next that next stage which is, of course, really important for my big picture. So then in parallel, right, we have photographic practice. So we have first picture reading, so learning how to read a picture, um, but also, of course, picture taking, how to use a camera, um, and then picture making, uh, which can include editing and developing too. Um, but 
the thing that I also want to emphasize when I'm when I'm thinking through what photographic literacy is is that it's it's much more complex um, than even just these these parts. Um, that ph photographs are uh, have this sort of surfeit of immediacy. Um, but we want to say that I want to say that a photograph doesn't just speak for itself. Uh, it also moves um, in and out of different kinds of contexts um, and contingencies. So it's also really important to think about the way in which photographs move into the sphere of literary literacy um, or into spheres of ideological literacy so that photographic literacy is taking into account all of these kinds of literacies. And, and how would you say do people achieve photographic literacy? Yeah, that's um, well. I think in our in our everyday lives, we're all we're all assuming that the way we use our our iPhones, <laughs> it's one part. So it's just how do you use your iPhone? How do you then edit the picture that you take afterwards? And then how do you sort of form your body even into certain models of the right way to pose in a photograph becomes part of that photographic literacy. Um, how do you describe the photograph um, within you know an Instagram? post or a Facebook post that's also built on an idea that there is a photographically literate way to present someone that you can play with forms and with certain modes and then against them too. Now, let's talk about the bit about the history of photography in Russia. When was it introduced and, and how was this new technology received? Um, so certainly with hyperbole. <laughs> so it was introduced in 1839, um, and that's really when we register the introduction of the French daguerreotype. Um, and photography was both really exciting and then also a bit of a threat. Um, so photography was exciting because it could do everything. Um, so it could allow for certain kinds of scientific inquiry, so we can look closer or further than we ever have before. We can create records um, of monuments and even of works of art um, and it could do that better than the human hand um, and that was what was so exciting so it's better than etching it's better than painting um, but for that reason, when it is everything, it's also viewed with distrust. Um, so in offering everything, you have this picture that's painted by the sun. So we have in mind our light writing or Russian svetopis. Um, so it's not potentially even made by human hands. It's made by technology. So in this sphere of art um, and artists, we have a lot of distrust. And this also includes authors. So authors like Dostoevsky argue that photography is just, it's just surface. It's just naturalistic. It's not real with a capital R. <laughs> it's not transcendent or transformative, which is so important to the 19th century realists. Um, and it could be confusing. You could confuse a picture of a person with that person, with their sort of essence, um, as it were. It went, it went, this idea of the, the, the flatness of photography in relationship to, say, like what you just said about Dostoevsky, is it because it also is devoid of any depth, emotion, a kind of there's a there's a kind of, it's kind of torn from the natural world in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So this this idea of being torn is really I think significant, right? It's pulled out um, from it's a moment, and even sometimes less than a moment um, that's pulled out from for someone like Dostoevsky and to an extent Tolstoy from a life story, um, and then in sort of that big 
the big picture from from history um, as well. And that kind of fragmentation can be quite, it's quite terrifying. Um, but it's also predicated on the idea that it is directly related to reality, that it is a picture of reality. Um, and those compounding factors make it make it a little bit scary. Let's talk about Tolstoy, because he's a he's an interesting figure, because on the one hand, um, he his writing is it's described as having he's described as having a camera eye and his kind of picturesque description of scenery of people. And then also he is a, you know, later, he, well, himself, but also especially later, he becomes a because of his celebrity, he becomes a subject of the camera. So he's kind of has this interesting relationship with the idea of the photographic. So what was his relationship with photo- the photographic and the camera and even his own picture? Mm, I like this idea of thinking about it, this, this relationship of the photographic kind of as, as a category. Um, and as you've already sort of stated, it is really, it's kind of complicated. Um, so when I first started thinking through Tolstoy, I had immediately put him in the skeptic camp um, as well, like, like Dostoevsky. Um, but Tolstoy was really interested in technologies, which I think is a great part of his biography and sort of thinking through his, his figure. So he was interested in film, in gramophones, um, and, and photography as well. So this is sort of a picture of Tolstoy that isn't sequestered from modernity, which is, I think, sometimes the the picture that we have um, of Tolstoy, especially in his, in his later life after his spiritual crisis. Um, but what I love in the story is that I a lot of the introduction of of photography into Tolstoy's life, so even outside of his writings, is through Sofia Andreevna, so through his wife, um, who's also an author um, in her own right. And she's a super accomplished photographer um, and a master of the large format camera. And she's at home crafting this loving picture of a loving family. Um, and then we have that picture come in conflict with Vladimir Tchertkov, so Tolstoy's publicist in the 1880s, um, who's crafting a different picture of Tolstoy. Um, and they're both circulating these sort of competing pictures of Tolstoy um, out in the world. Um, and they're also feuding behind the scenes, um, which, is, which is a really interesting way to think about how fraught even one picture of Tolstoy um, might be. And so he's viewing this as an intrusion onto his quiet solitude and his writing um, with Sofia Andreevna in particular, while also inviting Chertkov to take photographs of him and sort of blessing those that are circulated by Chertkov. And this is that picture of Tolstoy in his signature Tolstoyan blouse on horseback, um, coupled with moralizing Tolstoyan sayings. Um, but in all of this, what, what I think really came together for me is that what we see in Tolstoy is someone who is fundamentally acquainted with this photographic um, and how to deploy it. So he can deploy it in his texts. He can go into the minutia. He can use this camera eye to zoom in on things. Um, but he also knows how to use it um, in to further his aims as well, to get his message to the people and to the popular consciousness. Um, and he's somebody who was situated in such a way that he could also take over uh, the means of production, right? So he did this with his publishing house, with Pasrednik, with uh, Chertkov. Um, So he knew what it meant to stamp his image, his photographic image, on his works um, and to circulate it with that kind of photographic blessing. Was he he the, the kind of biggest or one of the biggest photograph celebrities in Russia at the time? And and do you have a sense of how did the image of Tolstoy in the photograph play in crafting the image of Tolstoy? 
Oh, I think it was, I think it was enormously, um, enormously important um, in this picture, but also for photography itself. Um, so photography received copyright protections rather late in Russia as opposed to the rest of the West. Um, so it wasn't until 1911, which is the year after Tolstoy died, that we see copyright protections for uh, photography, which really also from a legal perspective raises it to the level of art and the arts. Um, and I really argue that this is done through a photograph of Tolstoy Tolstoy, um, through Sergei Prakutin-Gorsky's color photograph of Tolstoy, which does circulate and is invited to circulate and to be cut out of Prakutin-Gorsky's magazine. Um, but it's also the sort of story of taking this photograph of Tolstoy that gets Prakutin-Gorsky his uh, the ear of the czar and the eye of the czar, so to speak, as the czar was also an amateur photographer. Um, and that allows photography to sort of enter the scene as an art, um, more or less through the body of, of Tolstoy. <laughs> Um, so this, of course, this this idea of the photographed Tolstoys and the issue of you know his wife representing a certain way and his publicists representing another way. This, of course, is a you know not just a fragmentation of Tolstoy, but a multiplicity of Tolstoys. So here you get this idea of the photographic and the anxiety or concerns that it creates about authenticity and author authorship. Now, I'm I'm assuming that. The authorship issue does get resolved to some extent when you have copyright, but the I would imagine the authenticity continues to linger uh, in terms of some of the skepticism or at least the concern about phot photography. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is this is one of those sort of origin questions of the project as well. It's a really big question. Um, and what what is authentic, of course, can shift to um, these are really shifting ideas. And that's this is one of those great problems of photography. It's both objective and then incredibly subjective. It's very ambivalent and very slippery. And authenticity plays into that very much. And so all of these authors um, are asking that question and engaging directly with it when they take up the camera. And that was the beginning of this project. I was just trying to ask what happens when authors take up the camera, when they actually become photographers themselves. So in the case of Tolstoy, there's only one photograph that, that I know of that he took himself. He took a selfie and gave it to um, Sofia Andreevna. But in almost all of the other cases, there's a really fundamental engagement with the process of taking photographs, with achieving a kind of photographic literacy and claiming photography um, within an author's identity and oeuvre, within his writing, um, his or her writing. Um, and that we see different kinds of um, authorial authenticity or not um, develop as the case might be. Um, but in every sense, there's sort of an attempt to get closer to subjects, I think. Um, and that is another thing that photography authors, unlike offer, offers, unlike some other media, unlike illustration, perhaps, or unlike painting, um, photography offers a way to become really proximate um, to the photographed subject or object. And also by proxy, it allows readers to then also become closer at least in an illusory way, perhaps, to that subject as well. Hi, talk a bit about, about this idea of the, the, the viewer becoming closer to the subject. Because I, I understand the idea of the photographer just in the sense of occupying the same space. But in terms of the viewer of the photograph, how does that bring them closer? 
Well, one of the, this really is predicated on the materiality of the photograph and the fact that a lot of what I'm looking at um, with these authors is not just them writing about photography, but about actually encountering reproduced photographs within their work. Um, and I would emphasize too, of course, they're no longer photographs once they're printed and put in a book, they're something else, but the, we, we encounter them so often as photographs and assume that they're photographs. Um, but when we're reminded of the fact that we could hold that person in our hands, right, by proxy, we become close. And this is this is the logic of celebrity, of course, too, right? That we could, the, the celebrity and the sphere of celebrity operates on this understanding that we want to get closer to the celebrity. And photography offers what looks like a really direct and very material presence of that celebrity in front of us or literally in our hands. Yeah. Or, or as well with the photographic album um, too. So that's also the logic by which albums operate, right? And the sort of right of of um, of engagement with with an album is about bringing one's loved ones close um, um, and re being reminded of them and their lives through their picture, through their their material by proxy. Yeah, this goes to the other issue, and that is that this bridging of uh, that photography allows between the public and the private. Um, and, and of course this issue of celebrity that you bring up, which is a fairly, you know, new phenomenon historically in the late 19th and early 20th century, in part because of the technology to able to propagate these figures. So talk about this, the way photography plays in within the public and the private. So in addition to Tolstoy, I think my other favorite early 20th century celebrity is Leonid Andreev. Um, and he's he's one of these characters who's really who's really dancing between this public and private um, as a wildly famous celebrity next to Tolstoy at the same time that Tolstoy is also writing and living at Yasnaya Polyana. So he's a playwright and a short story writer. Uh, but my favorite part of his brand is as the Edgar Allan Poe of Russia, um, as he was named uh, for the West and in the New York Times. Um, I also love this because he's in these performative feuds with Tolstoy and his family over the right way to write art. Um, to, and to uh, write literature, um, as it were. And he's, he's one of these figures who invites the press into his dacha. Um, so he's living in this enormous theatrical dacha in um, Russian Finland. Um, and so he's bringing in the press and cameramen to share these intimate portraits of himself and his family, uh, which are then consumed uh, very often next to pictures of Tolstoy in the popular press, sort of bringing, bringing in the everyday man into these, the, the intimate lives um, of these authors. But what I think is really significant uh, significant about Andreev, and this is where it might diverge a bit from the Tolstoy story, is that he was also a photographer, and he took hundreds of autochrome photographs, which are incredibly beautiful, and these are color glass plate positives, um, and he developed them at home in his dark room, so it's already sort of part of this, this life at home, this intimate home, this private space. Um, but as he's doing this, he's making his children into certain kinds of models, and also making himself like a character from his terrifying stories at different points. Um, and so we see this real tension in photography and in his photographic practice in particular, playing out this public self-fashioning. So the, the scary figure of the Edgar Allan Poe of Russia, and then this private life where his children are living their semi-bucolic lives um, in this beautiful dacha in Russian Finland. Um, 
And then he also ends up publishing some of these, which I think also further complicates how we watch these these images move, these these glass plates move from his home and then into the public sphere where they are consumed as part of popular journal cu- culture. Um, and that's in the, my favorite journal is called Sonsarasi, the son of Russia. And this is where you have this emphasis on these photographs that he took at home and they are his. And they're published alongside excerpts from his uh, prose, you know, about the uh, the terrifying resurrection of Lazarus, um, or Judas's figure is next to this wonderful self-portrait of um, Andreev in color with a red beret. Um, you know, I'm I'm actually looking at some of the photos that in your book, and and thankfully they're in color because they're really his photographs are really stylized, and and he's definitely crafting. A particular image of himself. Would you consider him perhaps the first, you know, modern celebrity in Russia that we we would recognize as a kind of celebrity in terms of him him himself controlling his image, but also controlling his image in a way to play off his art. I think so, and what what I think is different, we he's he's emblematic of this moment of Zhizhnetvorchestva, right? This this life creation that we know so well from this moment, but he's externalized it to a completely different degree within photography by again taking control of the sort of means of of production, as it were, and entering into that sphere quite consciously um, and very self consciously in that 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 public self-fashioning that's happening in these images. I'd like to think that's the case um, and that he knows how theatrical this is. Um, I say whenever I look back at those at those images, especially in color, they remind me even of 70s albums. Oh, covers. yeah, that's like exactly they really, it. They really, <laughs> yeah, they step out of their time in such a fascinating way. Um, and that's also the way that his children write about engaging with them. Um, that they they talk about this amazing proximity that they can fall into the world of their father or grandfather's photographs um, that they can jump into this pre-revolutionary moment um, but how fraught that moment is um, that we know that there's not only the incursion of revolution on the horizon um, but there's also the world that he created which is occupied by the terrifying images of Judas um, and the like which are also present um, in the photograph and in Andreev's body in those photographs. Well, let's talk about another aspect of this self-fashioning of this self-fashioning through photography. Now, you have this quote from Anatoly Lunacharsky, who was the Commissar of Enlightenment in the 1920s, and he wrote that just as every forward-looking comrade must have a watch, so must he be able to handle a camera. Just as the USSR achieved universal literacy in general, so too will it have photographic literacy in particular. So what is the role of the, I'm, I'm struck by on the one hand, the, the camera next to the watch. And then of course, the idea of two types of literacy that are certainly connected. So how did the camera serve as an instrument of kind of Soviet authorship, self-authorship, but also just becoming a Soviet person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, this is probably my favorite quote from Soviet history, if not obviously from the book, from the book itself. Um, Yeah, so what we see here is the way in which the camera um, is offering a kind of means of control, right? So like the watch structures time, the camera structures time and space, it's even a a bit of a step beyond uh, the watch. 
But what I think we also see here, and this is where the literacy comes in and the authors come in as well in particular, um, is that the camera also can enact a really creative transformation on surroundings and on a new Soviet everyday. Um, this is a lot of power that is complicit um, in the photograph and in the camera itself. Um, so there's this idea that Lunacharsky is also operating with and, um, and against to an extent um, that the camera can transform reality. So as, as the Soviet everyday reality is under its own revolutionary development, the camera can reflect that change, but also potentially be a part of that change. Um, and modernist author, uh, modernist photographers like Alexander Rodchenko are really utilizing that. Um, as they adapt their cameras to um, new heights and angles in order to capture this now um, defamiliarized um, every day. Um, but this is also becomes increasingly problematic um, as we trace a longer history of photography. Um, photography can also fragment um, and that we can see a fragmented picture or a picture of just one moment not fitting well with the rise of socialist realism by the 1930s where the idea of what it might mean to be photographically literate will really change um, quite a bit. Um, that while at the beginning of the Soviet period you can see the the camera as part and parcel to the kind of image of every man's Soviet authorship, that anyone can take up the camera, anyone can be an author, anyone can be a photographer, that we see a shrinkage of that kind of space and that kind of democratic empowerment um, by the latter part of the 1930s. But at the same time, in, in, in here, I want you to talk about socialist realism in photography, because for you, by the idea that the camera can represent the change of Soviet society, but also contribute to that change. So it's in this kind of this interesting dialectical relationship. It does see, speak to one aspect of socialist realism. So how does socialist realism aesthetics get imprinted into the photographic practice? And this is, again, really fraught. So at the 1934 Writers' Congress, we have photography being held up as a foil to socialist realism. That is that it, it like those 19th century discourses, it's fragmented, it's partial, it's naturalistic, it's superficial. It's not life in its revolutionary development. Yeah, it's static. That it's static. And that this is where photographs will fail. Um, so what we see in the photographic press is, is an attempt to say, no, 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 we can do this. We have already have the tools um, in our camera bags in order to show you what socialist realist photography will be. Um, and there are sort of two ways forward um, that are also predicated on this, this idea of photographic literacy, the sort of right way of taking photographs and the right way of representing photographs and the right way of contextualizing photographs. Um, so one way forward is the sort of posterized, these, this is the idea that a photograph does speak for itself, that its ideological engagement is very clear. Um, so it's very easy to imagine the smiling proletarian worker holding you know, an overflowing abundance of products. There's a very clear relationship there. And that, that, in that sense, we have this clear single photograph that can capture a socialist realist image on the order of something like a, a painting or a poster. The other way that we see photography overcoming this problem of fragmentation is through narrative 
the narrative and a narrative framing of photography. So one photograph doesn't stand alone. It has to be part of a series of photographs. So this is the rise of the photo series um, that we see that becomes really part and parcel to most, um, most of the use of photography um, in, in the popular press and even within a gallery space. We need the photographs to tell a certain kind of story about development. I see. Uh, interesting. So how does the, the, the fact that photographs can also be changed and doctored fit into this? Yeah, and this is also a, an important part of the story, um, and one that I, I always like to emphasize, that we've been photoshopping for as long as there have been photographs um, that from the very beginning, and that we see that coming to the fore, of course, um, in and of socialist uh, realist imaging um, in, the Soviet, uh, in the Soviet Union. So the other thing I would also say on the, on the sort of more skeptical reading side um, is that any photograph that is printed in a newspaper or for a journal will be altered in some way. Um, and that's not always an ideological alteration. Sometimes that's simply, again, part of this, this question of legibility within photographic literacy. It's to make the image more legible, to not distract with other extraneous elements, which may not at all be ideological, but simply that if we highlight this part of someone's face, it'll read better as a face um, as opposed to a dark space. Um, and so that's just the backdrop on which we can then see the logical extent of terror um, playing out when someone is uh, eliminated or, um, or purged they are also eliminated from the photographic record um, and that these two, this sort of material life becomes tightly tied again to the body um, on the most terrifying plane that is the elimination. Uh, they're, they're being rubbed out from life. You might actually be able to provide an answer to a question I've had for a long time since looking at uh, David King's book, the, yeah, the Commissar Vanishes. And, and the, the ones I'm, the, pictures I'm really struck by are the albums in which people scratch out the names. Why would people scratch <laughs> yeah. out the names, the, the pictures of people? <laughs> I mean, this is a really yeah. interesting, because at the one hand, they're not tearing them out. They're just scratching them out with a pen. Um, and so you just get blackened, blackened faces of photographs. So what is this all about? Yeah, that that is a great question. I can speculate um, quite a bit because um, I will say too what I've what I found very interesting in in um, in my accumulation of books from this period, and particularly through the uh, the Bellamore Canal books, the White Sea Canal books. Um, at least one of my copies has a few names scratched out as well. So a previous owner did also did also scratch out um, potentially problematic figures over time. And what I would say is that there's an understanding, particularly from the photographic standpoint, that again there's this representation of the person. This is a presentation of that person by proxy. And you can also be tainted by that person's presence within the book. It's interesting because the narrative might still hold, that is, you didn't throw out the whole book, that the book contains something that is still worthwhile to keep, but that that person has to be eliminated from that story. Um, in a sense, it's replicating this, this picture of a history that has to remain intact, um, but that we can still just eliminate some of the actors, some of the life stories in order to keep that that history intact. Um, that's at least what I see, but it also just speaks to the danger that the the owner of that book and those objects might be constantly in. It's this really material 
um, presence of that danger wrought in scratching in ink um, rather than just a photoshopped erasure. Right. So it, it plays these two roles. On the one hand, it's kind of a DIY uh, replacing the pages of the Soviet encyclopedia. And another one, another is that, well, if you are happen to be arrested and that book is confiscated and looked at by police, they're going to ask you, like, what's this all about? Like, why do you have this guy's picture? <laughs> you know, exactly. You're, you're playing out your understanding of your ideological orientation and where you should be performing that as well, um, that you're performing <laughs> your own uh, literacy, <laughs> ideological literacy therein. But at the same time, I mean, there's something at you know, despite the fact that photography is a very modern technology, it can all versus all these techniques can be used to manipulate the photograph to take certain images. But at the same time, there seems to be something sacral that remains about the image itself. I mean, here I'm thinking of, you know, people who are arrested for defacing, say, Stalin's picture, or even today, even defacing, uh, you know, other powerful leaders' pictures. So even even though the photograph is this kind of static uh, questions of, of authenticity, um, it, it still seems to hold a, a kind of, I don't know, personal represent or a corporal representation of the person. So is there a, some sort of sacredness in the image, the reproduction of the image? I think so. And I think that it has to do with a relationship to the subject, right? It's not, not every photograph can operate in that way, but many do, that there has to be some sort of personal or in, in the cases when we're talking about images of the leader, ideological relationship that dictates the ways in which you engage with that photograph, right? With a, if we think back again, just to the album, that again, that adoration of the subjects that's there, that they do become sacred and become part of the, of, 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 weaving together a family history and a family narrative, a chronicle, as it were, um, and that we also see that play out with these vaunted um, images of the leader, which come to take the place potentially of of an icon. And also, I mean, it also goes back to something you were talking about earlier in terms of, of celebrity, that the photograph allows for an intimacy that would not otherwise be there. So there's a there's something there's something emotional invested in that image that adds to its sacredness. Absolutely. Absolutely. That proximity is key, is key to enacting that. Absolutely. I want to go back to a question that I forgot to ask um, and I'll, I'll, I'll edit it before this last one on Solzhenitsyn. But another thing you talk about is in the 19, you know, 1920s and in the 1930s, especially you act, you have these, you know, basically photographic international exchanges where, you know, like Ilfim Petrov go to Paris. I mean, I have their uh, their book on their travels in, in the United States, which I love to assign to students. Um, and then you have a lot of American and European photographers in the Soviet Union and in, in kind of cataloging, you know, the first five year plan and things like this. Talk a bit, talk about this, in, this international exchange of, of photographers and photography in the, the, the late 20s and into the 1930s. And I, I see this as also part of a, a longer history of when we make general statements about photography, we think of photography as being tightly tied to the home, we're talking about albums, but it's as tightly tied to travel, right? So you can take a camera with you abroad, and we see this operating here. And photographs also travel. It's an easy way to circulate a certain kind of image of, of socialist construction on one side, um, and then a certain kind of picture from abroad. And if we're thinking particularly about this moment in the 20s and 30s, 
the picture of life abroad should be negative <laughs> and the picture of socialist construction should be positive. Um, so this is also, for me, part of the story of what a good or right photographic capture might be. Um, and my, I think I really like considering the picture of Paris here. So Ilya Edimburg's My Paris from 1933. So we're right on the cusp of developing what socialist realism will become. Um, and he takes these pseudo-clandestine photographs of Depression-era Paris with his side-angle viewfinder. Um, and by doing so, he's able to lay bare the ills of capitalism. But what I really love is thinking through the way in which this book itself also travels. So we have Ehrenberg and his camera traveling, and then we have the book traveling to the US um, in the hands of Jay Leda. Um, and it gets to Walker Evans and Ben Sean. Um, and it also travels in these very laudatory reviews to the Western press where Ehrenberg's work is held up as a model for American social documentary photography, um, saying essentially, this is the direction we should be going. We need to lay bare um, these overlooked human subjects in the way that this Soviet author in Paris is doing. Um, but of course, when you turn this picture back home, my Paris is read as um, a pretty ambivalent um, model, as it were. So he's accused of not speaking harshly enough about the ills of capitalism in Paris um, by not showing the right thing, by not showing the revolutionary masses. Um, and this haunts him for the rest of his career, as it were, before this, this necessitates a really sharp turn to socialist realism without photography. Um, and that's where we see his turn to his socialist realism novels um, and this sort of organizing metaphor of looking left um, comes to be an important part of his own memoirs later in life um, as well. And, and finally, how do you understand the modern Russian literary tradition now that you've investigated this relationship to photography? Do you, in what ways do you see it the same or even or different? I've, I, I have come to view it very differently. I think the, the agenda I came in with and I, I came out with has remained stable, but there's another important part that I'll get to. But the, the, the assumption I had made um, was that modern Russian literature and modern Russian literary tradition is distinctly visual. And I wanted to bring to the fore how visual that is by bringing to the fore the material of photography within the modern Russian literary tradition. Um, but sort of in a in a more general sense. The other thing that uh, that really has struck me is the fact that all of these author, photographer, author photographers and the question of photography um, really introduces this problem we've been talking about, the sort of frozen finality of the photograph. But the fact that it's also photography with cameras and printing is also about a constant process and a constant reprocessing that we can infinitely copy a photograph, move a photograph, put it into new contexts, um, and that we can do this with text as well and how important text is in shaping that. So in a sense, I think that these authors have revealed to me how illusory a really definite reading or a definitive volume on modern Russian literature might be, um, how indefinite something like um, a complete collected works is, um, that none of these authors are concerned with putting a sort of final period on a product um, in the same way that they're not concerned with what a single photograph can do, but rather what the process might offer towards getting closer or completely throwing out this idea that we can capture a whole of anything. 
two other authors you talk about, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Vladimir Nabokov, what is, how do some of these problems of photography, authorship, public, private, and also celebrity, of course, and the literary, I mean, you don't have to address all of those, but I just wanted to paint <laughs> all the things where I think t- these two figures kind of, these issues with photography get embedded in these two figures. How did the problems of photography relate to the relationship between Solzhenitsyn and Nabokov? Yeah, and it's these are sort of the the big endpoints. So it is it is a little bit of everything when we when we consider them. Um, and I, I love being able to bring these two together um, as well. And I emphasize too, and I want to emphasize that they are not um, necessarily author photographers in the same way that so many of the figures that I'm looking at in the book are, um, but they do utilize photography to to their ends um, in order to play with with all of all of the things that you see growing through um, through this long history of photography up until what we're looking at in both of their works that's around 19, the 1970s, um, as it were. So these are two authors who also represent a kind of world conscience by the time they're writing their these experimental photographic memoirs. So in the case of Solzhenitsyn, we have the Gulag Archipelago, and then with Nabokov, we have Speak Memory. Um, and I think that for both of them, they are really united by a concern for the ways in which photography could offer um, this problematic substitute of a full picture of life or of memory, um, of experience or suffering. Um, So what Nabokov really does in Speak Memory is give us a view into potentially the the intimate, into his personal life. Um, He's taking photographs from his own uh, albums, um, but not letting us see all the way in. Um, And often this is done through the intervention of text. So having a long caption tell us what we can't see in the photograph and making us focus and refocus our attention differently by making us move away from the photograph, as it were, even though it's paradoxically very present for us. Um, And then for Solzhenitsyn, he's really laying bare the false narrative put forward by photography by the Soviet state through places like the White Sea Canal. Um, by offering a different picture of suffering, by utilizing some of the same photographs that were published in the White Sea Canal book, um, as well as staging his own photographs, which I find really, really interesting. So instead of talking here about necessarily altering the surface of photographs, thinking about another potential falsification that is staging photographs. So he poses in his prison garb after his release. And this is one of the most oft-circulated pictures of Solzhenitsyn, and it often becomes a divorced from this context, which is he does say that he took this immediately after release and he talks about how he posed, but it's often taken as a picture of him in the gulag, within the gulag, rather than upon release. And of the gulag, Um, and of the gulag itself. Exactly. It comes to represent all of the gulag through his authorial persona, wherein he's also harnessing this power of photography. One of the first things he does when he's released is get a camera to take this photograph um, with another Zek, with another recently released prisoner. Um, And then this becomes the frontispiece of the gulag archipelago. And as you mentioned, the sort of poster of suffering um, in the gulag. And and finally, how do you understand the modern Russian literary tradition now that you've investigated this relationship to photography? Do you, in what ways do you see it the same or even, or different? 
I've, I, I have come to view it very differently. I think the, the agenda I came in with and I, I came out with has remained stable, but there's another important part that I'll get to. But the, the, the assumption I had made um, was that modern Russian literature and modern Russian literary tradition is distinctly visual. And I wanted to bring to the fore how visual that is by bringing to the fore the material of photography within the modern Russian literary tradition. Um, but sort of in a, in a more general sense, the other thing that, uh, that really has struck me is the fact that all of these author, photographer, author photographers and the question of photography um, really introduces this problem we've been talking about, the sort of frozen finality of the photograph. But the fact that it's also photography with cameras and printing is also about a constant process and a constant reprocessing that we can infinitely copy a photograph, move a photograph, put it into new contexts, um, and that we can do this with text as well and how important text is in shaping that. So in a sense, I think that these authors have revealed to me how illusory a really definite reading or a definitive volume on modern Russian literature might be, um, how indefinite something like um, a complete collected works is, um, that none of these authors are concerned with putting a sort of final period on a product um, in the same way that they're not concerned with what a single photograph can do, but rather what the process might offer towards getting closer or completely throwing out this idea that we can capture a whole of anything. That was Catherine Reichel, an assistant professor of Slavic language and literature at Princeton University. She's the author of Photographic Literacy, Cameras in the Hands of Russian Authors, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!